We have a very strange story to talk about today, the abrupt resignation of the state school board superintendent. It doesn't make any sense, but it's not the first story we'll be talking about on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, Layla Tassi. A reminder that tomorrow we'll be recording a special live audience episode at noon to talk about abortion. The people that have responded should have gotten an email from Laura and I explaining how that will all work. We'll send out the final draft today. Let's start. Is the Ohio Supreme Court powerless to enforce its orders involving gerrymandering? What's the latest evidence that the Supreme Court has all been all all but neutered by the battle over redistricting. Laura? Well, when we talked about this story on Friday, you and I, I believe the term you used was eunuch, which I don't believe I'd ever heard talking about news stories before. (laughs) So props to you on that one. Uh, (laughs) But this is an incredibly blatant move by the Republicans on the redistricting commission. I've said over and over on this podcast, but the Republicans have made it clear that they think they can do whatever they want. And the court's inability to stop them makes it pretty clear that they're right. It's depressing as a citizen. The court seems to have no check of power over the legislative branch of government. The Republicans had gotten the Republican judges on the federal court to lock in a set of maps the Supreme Court had already rejected more than once, so they don't really care that the Supreme Court rejected them again and that the court set new deadlines, one of which was Friday morning. It came and went without any kind of meeting of the redistricting commission, and they pretty much said, we're going we're gonna to wait this out. This is not the time that we should be working on this. You know, the, the the government only works if people do it in good faith. Mm-hmm. Woodward and Bernstein had a really interesting story over the weekend in the Washington Post that, Laura, you'll love. It starts with Washington's farewell address, which, you know, you know from Hamilton, in which <laughs> he says that bad people can wreck this. And there, it's a long story comparing Nixon and Trump two really bad actors that were working against the interest to maintain their power and that our government isn't protected from that. Well, that's what's happening in Ohio. Mike DeWine, Keith Faber, and and Frank LaRose, Bob Cup, Matt Huffman are not working in good faith. The Supreme Court is supposed to be an equal branch of government, and they're supposed to follow its rulings, and they're just not, which turns the government upside down. We don't have protections against this. The Supreme Court seems incapable of going through with the contempt of court, not sure why, but we are completely unprotected when the worst kind of people, like the people in state government right now, don't follow the rules. Right. It's not, and it's it's not just the worst kind of people. It's also the lack of a balance of power between Democrats and Republicans. We have a super majority of Republicans. We have a Republican governor who kowtows to the Republican legislature, and so there's nobody really holding each other accountable. It makes you think like we really maybe need a parliamentary system where nobody can have a supermajority and you have to compromise with other people because the Republicans are saying, hey, we'll fix our maps, but we're going to do it on our own timeline. And that basically means after they kick Maureen O'Connor out of office, not kick, but she's she's reached judicial age limits and they want Sharon Kennedy instead. She's already a justice. She's already um, said over and over in this redistricting commission that she believes that they can do what they want, that there's no problem with the maps that they created, even when they were completely gerrymandered from the beginning, right? It's, and, yeah, and they're I just st- running out the clock here. I still think, though, you're getting away from the point that they're they're not following the rules. I wrote a column over the weekend because we keep getting asked by people to champion a reform of county government. 
And my point in the column is it's not the structure. It's the people. They're they're doing a bad job. The sure, county council but we elect pe- those people. And that's what's really, you know, is that people are putting party ahead but, of government. But you don't have a choice, right? I mean, in the end, the party system puts up some people. In Cuyahoga County, it's heavily Democratic. So whoever the Democratic Party chooses is going to win. It's not really a choice. There's no runoff in November from the top two Democratic vote getters, you're stuck with who's there. So so in Cuyahoga County, it's the Democrats who are not doing their job and, and representing us. But but in the state level, they're literally, they're not following the will of the voters that changed the Constitution. So they're violating the Constitution and have repeatedly, and they're refusing to follow the orders of the Supreme Court. That's not how it's supposed to work. They should all be thrown out of office for not doing their job, but I guess nobody has the means to really mount that campaign. I mean, the the, the real check should be the voters, right? The voters should stand up and say, we won't stand for this. You're not doing what we asked you to. You're not following our referendum, but they care more about party than the government, I think. We'll see. I don't know. I do think Nanueli has a chance here. And and Jennifer Bruner is running against Sharon Kennedy for that Supreme Court chief justice seat. And she just won an election beating a Republican. Of course, parties weren't listed on the ballot then. It was name recognition. This time, they've made sure parties will be there. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How many people are now suing Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose, claiming he has used illegal maneuvering to prevent Democrats from appearing on the ballot in districts where the party is favored to win seats? Lisa, we just finished talking about how a bunch of elected officials are breaking the rules. Frank LaRose clearly is breaking the rules here. Yeah, this is just more fallout from the redistricting mist. There were three lawsuits filed last week challenging Frank LaRose's guidance to election officials across the state about the August 2 primary, and this concerns paperwork deadlines that were shifted when that three-judge federal panel ruled that map number three, the unconstitutional map number three, will be used for the August primaries, and LaRose said that that ruling didn't change the March 10th date to file state residency requirements and other things. So one of the suits was filed in the Ohio Supreme Court by six Democratic legislative and party central committee candidates last week. They want the paperwork deadline set 90 days before the August 2 election, which would be in May. And then House candidate Jennifer Griot, a Republican from Cincinnati, she, she sued Wednesday in federal court. She's asking to be placed on the, on the ballot and she wants them to block that February deadline that was, that really no longer works. And then Representative Adam Miller, a, d- a Democrat from Columbus, filed over the uh, March 10th residency deadlines and he wants 30 more days to, you know, for candidates to move to chosen districts. But the upshot of this is at some of these races may not be able to field a Democratic candidate because they don't know what district they're in. Yeah, I, we talked about this with one case uh, on Friday, and now they're just popping like popcorn. Frank LaRose, knowing that this map, even though it's gerrymandered, is more balanced than the previous map, is trying to maintain the imbalance by just keeping them from appearing on the ballot. 
I, I we talked Friday. We don't see how this can stand, but you don't know. I mean, if they go to a federal appellate court with two Trump judges, they might twist the whole system as they did in the gerrymandering case. It's a very cynical moment in Ohio government. And I and I realize, you know, that there there are shifting, you know, issues here. I mean, redistricting has thrown a monkey wrench into everything, but you shouldn't stick to old deadlines that really no longer apply in this situation. Right. This the, the law is pretty clear. You count back from the election date. So that's not February. It would have been May. Well, the, the, the cases, some of them are being fast tracked. Hopefully we'll get rulings quickly. It's today in Ohio. With Cuyahoga County government ready to waste $46 million in money they don't even have on the failed medical mart, we added up all the amounts taxpayers have already put behind tourism in downtown Cleveland just in the past few years. Layla, what's the bill? Yeah, reporter Bob Higgs pulled data from the last four years. It turns out that number busts $300 million, Chris. That money comes from a variety of sources, but the largest pot is is lodging tax, or what we know as bed tax. That's a 6.5% surcharge that the county levies on hotel bills. That total took a hit during the worst of the pandemic, but the, you know, the collections are on the rise again. It climbed back up to around $22.6 million for 2021. Destination Cleveland, the region's tourism bureau, gets a pretty solid chunk of that money. Their job is to market Greater Cleveland to attract leisure visitors to the region and work with meeting planners, hotels, the convention facilities, development corporation organizations like the Greater Cleveland Sports Commission to get the events here. Destination Cleveland estimates it gets about 40 percent of the lodging tax, and that's about 95 percent of its annual budget. So last year, it got $14 million from lodging tax. And a portion of the lodging tax once that was once used to pay off construction bonds for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Museum now also goes to Destination Cleveland. But part of that pot, about $10.4 million in 2021, is used by the county for debt service on the project to re- remake the queue into Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse. Now, you've also got bed tax going to improvements to Progressive Field and the Rock and, rock and Roll induction ceremonies that are held every year every other year uh, here in Cleveland. And then, you know, of course, that brings us to the Global Center and Convention Center Complex. That huge project was funded by a quarter percent or a quarter cent increase of the sales tax approved in 2007. That amounts to an average of more than $217 million annually when you look at the collections over the last four years. So they also get a portion of lodging tax to pay for debt service. So yeah, the pitch is, that the region's economy will reap the benefit of sinking another $46 million into these improvements of the Global Center to transform that complex into this grander convention center. But unlike lodging tax, which is largely paid by tourists supporting the tourism industry, the county would have to float bonds to cover these upgrades, which means every taxpayer would be paying them regardless if they ever even set foot in these places and these amenities. So it boils down to whether you buy their argument that improving this one facility will draw billions of dollars into the region in, in a way that lifts all boats. But it's also <laughs> about spending money you don't have. We already have to build a new jail, which is a half billion or probably much more. There's, we either need to renovate the, the Justice Center where the courtrooms are or build a new one, which is another half billion probably. 
and we don't have any of this money. And so, the- right. And they're they're saying that that sales tax is going to have to be diverted to the jail. That's where that money is going to have to probably, which come is already from. a tax increase. So, they're already going right, to make that right. a perpetual tax increase instead of sunsetting it. So they're already raising taxes without asking voters again. And yet they don't have this money. So they're going to have to go out and borrow it. That, that's the irresponsible part of this. They don't have the money. The county does not have the money on hand and it has other much more important priorities. But nobody on that council is speaking this way. Nobody. Even though we hear from the public all the time that they don't want to spend it on this. They want tax relief. The council is just trotting down Armin Budish's path. They're going to rubber stamp it like they rubber stamp. Everything. Yeah, I mean, they've already heard the first the first pitch, and everyone was kind of open-eared and amenable. Nobody raised any concerns so far. Yeah. I mean, we'll see. I, I, I just don't see the, uh, you know, I, there's there's no skeptical eye so far. I'd love far. to see a plank of candidates start coming together to just take over and, and, and talk about being conservative fiscally and looking out for the taxpayer because the people we have... They just don't do it. It's today in Ohio. Can the search for a new state superintendent of schools get any more strange? We talked and talked about how the guy who ultimately got the job had a conflict because he was leading the search until the last minute and then applied. But then less than a month after getting appointed, he quit. Laura, I don't buy the explanation. I don't either. I mean, it's like saying that you're retiring to spend more time with your family. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> this is such a ridiculous set of events. And I have to give kudos to Laura Hancock, who I feel like broke the story months and months ago and has covered it doggedly every step of the way. And then this latest turn where he just resigned, I think it was actually 11 days after he actually started the job um, and, and, you know, first day on the job, quit. And he's saying, quote, I don't want the revolving door questions to distract from the important work ahead for schools, educators, and especially the children, which when I read that from Laura, I was like, so why did he take the job, right? Like he was a board member. He was vice president of the board. Um, They were looking for a new school superintendent with about, um, he quit three days later, applied for the job. And that was about 24 hours before applications closed. So very end of the cycle, he takes his job. And Laura got some really interesting information from the Ohio Ethics Commission that state law prohibits board members from accepting compensation and other benefits from an employment contract authorized by a board that they served on for one year after they leave the board. I'm not sure he realized this or realized how much scrutiny he was going to get. And maybe this is a last ditch way of hoping that he doesn't get prosecuted for it. Well, that's what I'm wondering. I'm wondering if somebody filed a complaint and referred this to prosecution. And we talked about this and talked about this, about how outrageous it was, because by knowing all the information about everybody who had applied, he could fashion his application in a way in which he rises to the top. Mm -hmm. And that didn't stop him. I mean, we talked and then he was made a finalist and we talked and talked about it. I mean, we've been banging this drum for months. So you can't tell me that less than a month in, he suddenly goes, you know what? I don't want those controversies to get in the way of doing good work here. There's got to be a trigger. And I suspect somebody has asked for some kind of investigation and maybe a lawyer has told him, you know, this is bad. Right. And I mean, he's, so he's saying, I'm resigning effective immediately. He gave no notice and refusing compensation for my service in that position so the department can get on with building the educational future for the children of Ohio. So maybe there's something 
in that ethics issue where you can't get compensated. So he's now saying, I'm not going to get paid for those 11 or 24 days that I worked. So I can't get in trouble. That's all I can think of. Yeah, but you would have thought that the school board would have figured that out before right. they gave the guy the job. I mean, this was again, this wasn't some secret. Laura did a great job on this story and mm-hmm. we pounded it. I wonder if one of the people that lost out oh. filed the complaint. Anyway, yeah. we're we're going to keep asking cuz this doesn't pass the sniff test, but man, what a strange strange story. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How close did a police officer come to being executed because of a drug case he was investigating? Lisa, this was a jaw dropper. Yeah, this is the story has legs and it connects to another story that we talked about last week. So let me set this up for you. So 49-year-old Ruben Schwartz of Conneaut, he's a businessman in real estate and construction. He was arraigned last Friday on federal money laundering charges to which he pled not guilty. But it was kind of a contentious hearing because, you know, they wanted him to stay on house arrest. His lawyers did, but he ended up being staying in federal custody. So during this, there was testimony from FBI agent Jason Watson, and he testified that Schwartz offered a hundred grand to a construction acquaintance of his to kill Conneaut police detective Taylor Cleveland. Now, this is one week after a February raid on Schwartz's home, and uh, Watson also said that Schwartz and the same accomplice went to someone's house in 2018 to shoot him for owing them a hundred thousand dollars so this is all connected to alleged drug dealer mark mahoney of north royalton who was charged with leading an eight-person drug ring last week that was responsible for 20 million dollars of cocaine coming from mexico to various Cleveland areas. So this story has legs. And I will say that uh, Schwartz has not been charged with this attempted, you know, assassination yet. But this testimony did come up as part of his his money laundering charges. Yeah, we have not seen that kind of thing in Northeast Ohio in quite some time. I mean, the idea that the drug operation is so profitable that they would kill the cop that is investigating it is just chilling and this guy schwartz apparently there was a second raid there was a raid on his house in february there was a second raid on schwartz's house may 19th and they were seizing evidence of a 2021 arson of a building that schwartz bought for one hundred and thirty thousand dollars. it was an old restaurant it was insured for 1.3 million and burned down a couple of months later and he got 1.1 million dollars in insurance money so Yeah. Interesting stuff. The story's on Cleveland.com. It's today in Ohio. Cleveland City Council proposes to spend $15 million of its stimulus cash on demolition. Let's talk about the wisdom of using one-time money on one-time projects. Leo, the bulk of Lucas Dupre's story was about the mechanics of demolition, but what I'm more interested in here is the idea that this is one-time project for one-time money. We've talked about how police departments are hiring police with their stimulus money and when the money's gone they're going to be in the lurch this is different yeah 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 lucas brought us the story last week he had written about how how many communities as you said had planned on spending arpa money on beefing up law enforcement ranks despite the fact that attrition would pretty quickly deplete those numbers any any expense that needs to be sustained at that high level with 
payrolls and training, you could argue is, is kind of questionable as far as the use of ARPA dollars goes, because, you know, you have, you're supposed to be looking for that long-term transformational effect on a community. That's what every city should be aiming for, that bang for your buck, not necessarily filling gaps in payrolls. So this week, Lucas focused on Cleveland's plan to spend $15 million on demolishing blighted structures. And the idea here is that once those houses are gone, they're gone. And the community or the neighborhood can reimagine those spaces, or the very least it purges the community of properties that had dragged down surrounding property values and created safety hazards. And, and it's permanent. So, you know, in the city of Cleveland, you know, city is home to roughly 3,900 blighted buildings, according to this analysis by the Thriving Communities Institute. And, and the demolition cost for all of those structures would be about 78 million. So the 15 million is really just a start, and they're far from creating a comprehensive plan for demo in the city. But the city already has hundreds of demo-ready properties in the queue. So they can really get started right away with this money without that strategic plan in place. And the city has an eye toward rehabbing homes as well. Uh, Sally Martin, the city's director of building and housing, said that the city should be less hasty about condemning properties and should consider those alternative uses that let residents have a chance to make investments and establish generational wealth. And and like you said, Lucas really does go deep on on uh, the benefits of demolition for um, you know improving the long term. Uh, prospects for a community, but but you're right. You know this this is more in line with how a how a city should be using its ARPA money instead of just okay. Where can we where can we plug the holes in our in our payroll for the time being? How you know how can we 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 know that we're going to be losing a bunch of cops to attrition. So let's let's just throw our one time. In, you know, transformational money into that. I mean, that just seems so short-sighted, doesn't well, it? Well, part of the, the stimulus money was to help cities if they lost income cover costs, which Cleveland has done a sure. little bit of. Be- there is purpose yeah. for that. But, You're right. But we've talked from you, the beginning. You carve that out and you set that aside and that goes into your general fund, right? But then the rest of yeah. it. And there's a lot. There is a lot of money here. So And, and we've right. talked from the beginning about imaginative uses of the money you know if you did it for workforce training and you got a whole block of people trained for jobs that they would then provide for themselves for the rest of the time that would be transformational removing lead paint from cleveland houses i mean the the generations of cleveland children are hell are really held back from thriving because they're exposed to lead paint we've documented this over and over again get rid of the lead paint gone forever good one-time use right demolition is too anybody that's ever been in a neighborhood that had a blighted home knows how much it means to get that thing out of there lifts the whole neighborhood so i salute cleveland for actually thinking about this in the right way and not squandering it on just day-to-day costs this this will change neighborhoods as you said I agree. I agree. And I personally, I think uh, lead paint is perhaps the most important, the most important investment they can make with the ARPA, with the ARPA. Money. I know, I would have. I'm not sure how much more they need to, to fill the gap, but as much as they can throw at it, yeah, they I should. I would have used all of That's it. If it took all opinion. of it, I would just said, let's get rid of the lead paint. That will make more of a difference for the future of Cleveland than I any agree. 10 other things combined. It is the right thing to do. It's today in Ohio. It's been over a decade since the school shootings that happened in Chardon, and we wondered how students in the school back then react when they see school shootings today, like we saw a week ago in Texas. 
One of the Chardon students from back then agreed to talk about it. Laura, what did he say? He said that Americans in general have grown numb to school shootings, but Uvalde really pierced him. Um, this is Drew Gittins. He was 16 years old on the morning that TJ Lane pulled out a 22 caliber handgun in the cafeteria at Chardon High School, shot six students. He killed three. He permanently paralyzed another. Now he's 26. He's a lawyer. He's still in Northeast Ohio. And obviously this is one person's recollections and feelings about the shooting. But he says it helped form his career path. Yet it, he doesn't think it's very present in the Chardon community now. He doesn't talk about it with his friends. And he said that if he had to guess about gun reform, he doesn't think it's a very popular political opinion, even in Chardon. He put it about getting about 35% for reform, if that. So it, it, it's not a huge conversation in the town this much later. Yeah, this is one person, but it's right. somebody that was in the school and experienced all this as a teenager. And it's interesting to hear from them 10 years later, every time we have one of these kinds of shootings, how how it affects them. I mean, is it is it post-traumatic stress every time you see it? Does it bring you back? Yeah, I think probably, obviously, it hits everyone different. And I, I think there's a lot of people that don't want to talk about it, right? That that's their way of coping is just not to focus on it. But we did a story, um, obviously, it was the 10-year anniversary. I believe it was February. Um, what some folks have done in the assist, uh, the coach, assistant coach who helped tackle him, I believe there's a foundation and stuff. So they're, they're all dealing with it in their own ways, but there are thousands and thousands and thousands of kids that have dealt with this in the past, you know, ever since Columbine. We're at, you know, 23 years now. And all of them must have so much anxiety, so much survivor guilt, or just, you know, stuff they carry with them for the rest of their lives. Yeah, it's a good piece. Check it out on cleveland.com. It's today in Ohio. Lisa, we all love our mail carriers, so this is a really bad place to be. What are some of the reasons that Cleveland continues to lead the nation in dog bites of postal carriers? Well, the, the reasonings that some of the local litter carriers give is that owners let their dogs run free, and then there are owners that say, oh, don't worry about my dog, he doesn't bite, and then the dog proceeds to bite. Um, and also they say that staffing issues are a problem because that means that carriers are working unfamiliar areas. Like I've had three different letter carriers in the last month, so I totally see that. But Cleveland, uh, this was a report released by the Postal Service on Friday as part of National Dog Bite Awareness Week, which began yesterday. Cleveland is number one in 2021 with 58 attacks on letter carriers. That's up from 46. Houston is number two at 54. Kansas City with 48 at number three. Los Angeles had 44. And then rounding out the top five was Louisville, Kentucky with 42, you know, 42 dog attacks on letter carriers. The National Association of Letter Carriers Local 40 President Eric Poston says, this has been a major issue for several years, and he recently talked with Mayor Justin Bibb about ways to protect letter carriers going forward. And he also says, quote, we always seem to be in the top five. In 2016, Cleveland was number three. In 2020, we were number four. Yeah, it's bizarre. I don't get it because per capita, we must be through the roof. We have more dog bites than L.A. and New York. I just it's such a hard thing to fathom when you have cities that are so much more populated. I mean, New York has got to have 
what, what a factor of what? Five, six, eight, ten times as many dogs as Cleveland. And our dogs keep biting the mail carriers. It doesn't make sense. Hey, we're the dog pound. No, honestly, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> who said? Yeah, in Houston, you know, we beat them by four attacks. And Houston's probably four or five the times the size of Cleveland. So, yeah, you got me there. And it and what was weird is it's not strays. These are like people's dogs that are that are getting out and running around. And I can't imagine we're the only city in America with a postal carrier numbers problem. I mean, other cities must have carriers striving to fill in for each other. So I, it just I don't know why we keep doing it, but year after year after year we're at the top, and it's not a good place to be. You're listening to today in Ohio. Let's do this one quick. How is Cleveland experimenting with slowing down speeders in city neighborhoods? Layla, it's a good approach. Yeah, they're, they're going to install these things called speed tables. They're these wider, flat-top speed bumps. They're going to put them on 10 residential streets with documented speeding issues. And they're going to put 10 digital speed radar signs around the city. This is all part of the broader goal of calming traffic to make Cleveland streets safer. It's part of uh, what they're calling the Vision Zero Initiative, seeking to reduce traffic-related deaths and injuries. Courtney has the full list of streets on Cleveland.com. They pick these streets these streets because they carry medium traffic volumes between a thousand and four thousand vehicles a day and often because these streets see speeds at at or above the posted speed limit of 25 miles per hour the city is going to monitor the speed tables to see whether they work of course or actually create problems for public safety responders or public transit and in the winter time uh, how are these going to impact snow removal? Very good question. <laughs> I hadn't even thought yeah. of that. Because if you look at the picture of these, these are like kind of raised up quite a ways and uh, much, much more, um, you know, much more obvious. And, uh, you know, the profile is much bigger than than your average speed bump. So very interesting uh, and different Yeah, it'll be interesting to approach. see because the snow plows, one of the ways they work is by moving pretty quickly. And if they have to stop and lift the plow blade to go over these things maybe they're graduated enough where the plow blade goes up on its own good question good story check it out on cleveland.com it's today in ohio that does it for a monday thanks lisa thanks laura thanks layla and thank you for listening to this podcast